I will not be able to do this without crying. So, uh, the project ended when Herb brought us all together and told us it was over, and I didn't even see that coming. Hmm. I was like, what? What? Like, can't we problem solve? Can't we figure this out? No, it's done. Over. And that was the end. In 1977, Nim Chimpsky, the subject of an ape-language experiment in New York City, was sent back to Oklahoma, to the Institute for Primate Studies. Nim was leaving the only home he knew and was going to go back to live in a cage without any of us. So I was miserable. (laughs) And I probably let everybody know I was miserable. But for Joyce Butler, who'd worked with Nim for years, there's a silver lining. One of the best things about Oklahoma was Bob Ingersoll. And I knew I was handing Nim over to Bob and that Bob would do right by him. I just knew I was a chimp. I knew it. And I, 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 it was like my people, you know, family or whatever. Maybe I was looking for something. My name's Bob Ingersoll, and I'm a primatologist by training and uh, an animal rights activist by, you know, by what I do now. At the time, Bob is a psychology student who's been working with other chimps at the Oklahoma facility. I was there the day he came. Uh, You know, it was a big deal. But then Nim shows up and this chimp is out of his depth. I mean, he has not interacted with another chimp since he was two weeks old. He's freaking out. I mean, you can see it. You know, he's like tensing his lips and doing all the kind of things that chimps do when they're distressed. And... uh, you know, we come to the realization that we got we got a job on our hands here because he doesn't really know other chimps. So Bob, he decides that he's going to look out for Nim. We went on walks for hours at a time. We signed about what we, you know, we'd encounter a door. We'd be walking up to a gate and... Uh, and he'd jump off my back and run up to the gate and sign open, open, which is two hands, palm, palm to palm, and then opening your, like a book. So open, open. And, uh, and then hurry, you, me, ride there, that kind of stuff. Bob signs with Nim and helps him ease into the new group with the other chimps. We didn't want to exclude Nim or any of the other chimps because we wanted them to feel like they were one of us, you know, part of the group. And anytime you exclude a chimp from something, they know it. And so we would, in a circle, pull out a you know joint and pass it like friends. And he was just one of us in a circle, passing a joint, and that was that. I gotta ask you though, like. Yeah, what do they act like, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I kind of want to know what a. A chimp that's high is like... Like you and me, same thing. They're, they're like, easier to deal with. They're, you know, they're mellow. There's nothing in you that feels weird at all about having handed a a joint to a chimp? No, I mean, I wouldn't do it now. But uh, at the time, it just seemed completely normal. You know, he was fun. Just like it would be if you and I smoked a joint together. You know, if it was good pot. uh, (laughs) We would go, wow, that's nice. 
I'm Ariel Zumros, and this is a show about animals. Today, the final episode of Project Coco. Over the last few months, I've been trying to answer this one question. Can we talk to animals? And so after doing all of this research, talking to all of these experts and all these people who worked on these experiments for years, I'm sitting here in my studio slash closet trying to figure out, have I answered my question? And was that even the right question? I'm not sure yet. But one thing I've come back to again and again while working on this season is this. I love science. I love how it soars. I love how limited it is. I love that by design, it never actually gives you an answer. It just strives to get you closer to a truth. And most of all, I love how it reveals who we, humans, really are. How messy and narrow-minded we can be. So today, we're going to dive even further into what these studies and the way they were designed can teach us about us. But first, there is this one loose thread that we need to tie up about Nim Chimsky. So after his study ends in 1977, Nim spends a few years in Oklahoma with Bob. But the institute that's caring for him is struggling. And, you know, in no time, the chimps started to get sold. And so Nim and a bunch of other chimpanzees, including his brother and his mother, Carolyn, they get sent to a medical lab. Which means Nim is about to get used in a very different type of experiment. One where he's going to be injected with hepatitis. And, uh, and, and that, that's at the point at which I stood up and said, OK, no. This is not going to fly, at least for me. And, that, and I went to the New York Times and the Boston Globe and a number of other publications and raised hell and bitched and did everything I could. And so there are stories about this in a bunch of papers, and the story kind of blows up. And uh, the newspaper people called me, and more newspaper people called me. Nim never got to be as famous as Coco, but he was still well-known. And the idea that this chimp is now destined to finish his life as a test subject in a medical lab, that's just beyond the pale. And so this story gets a lot of attention. Herb Terrace, the head of the NIM project at Columbia University, pipes up. And animal welfare groups also join in. And eventually, the university that owns the lab, NYU, agrees to send NIM back to Oklahoma, along with his brother. So NIM gets saved. But Bob says that's not enough because it's not just about Nim. And I'm like, hey, wait a second. You can't just save Nim and leave everybody else. What about Kelly? What about Onan? What about Carolyn, his mother? You know, what about all the other? What about Sherry? What about Bowie? What about Bruno? But Nim doesn't stay in Oklahoma. Because of all the press and attention he's getting, he ends up moving to this ranch, an animal sanctuary in Texas, where for a while, he's the only chimp. He was alone, and, and that, wasn't, that wasn't a good thing. I mean, chimps need other chimps. You know, they're social animals. In time, a few other chimps end up joining him at the ranch, 
And according to Bob and some of the other former caretakers of NIMS, like Joyce Butler, NIM keeps on remembering the signs he learned while he's at the ranch, even years later. And so the few times that they get to visit him, they get some requests. I didn't recognize him at first, but he recognized me. And right away he came over and sat in front of me and he said, gum, give. I'm like, Jesus. are you serious? That, yeah. was... <laughs> that was I'm like, really? Thanks a lot. Gum, that's all you want from me? And then it was quickly tickle play, tickle chase, you know, the, all the like the tickle games, the chase games, the pull my leg. In 2000, Nim passes away from a heart attack. He was 26 years old. Even now, Joyce still carries a lot of regret about the path that Nim's life took, which was very different from Coco's. You've mentioned Penny Patterson a couple times. I have. Um, and I get the sense from you that that you respect her a great Absolutely. Deal. Absolutely. She stayed the Do course. She made the commitment. Hmm. She made a commitment. You know, she mucked with somebody's life and then she stayed the course and made it as good, as as positive as she could. And she didn't give up. She didn't walk away. She made the commitment. Like, I have enormous respect for her for that. Do you think you could have been that for Nim? Absolutely. No questions asked. Like you were willing, ready, able? At 19, yep. I would have stayed the course. Because that's the commitment you make. There were a lot of other chimps who were used in medical studies, infected with different diseases, subjected to different experimental treatments, and often living in really awful conditions, all with the stated aim of benefiting humans. A few of them even knew how to sign too, but the public didn't know that. They weren't famous. But Nim, he knew how to sign, and people knew who he was. Like Coco, Nim became special because of his signing and the fame it brought him, which apparently made him more deserving of humane treatment. And so he got out. That's the power of language for most people. It elevates, gives value. You are not finished. You are not finished. You didn't do the work, I asked. Just found the sad from all sad. A really quick spin, and then once you're good and dizzy, <laughs> send you off. These apes were no more or no less special than other members of their species. But Nim and Coco appeared to be trying to talk to us. And that moved us. You stir, Coco. It needs to be stirred. We love you, Coco. Well, I love visiting with you. Except, and this is another really important point here, most ASL users would not have been able to communicate with these apes because 
what Coco and Nim learned wasn't proper American Sign Language, because most of their teachers barely knew that language themselves. I think that the view of sign language, uh, people, I think, see it more as like gesture and not an actual language, you know, and that folks who use the language aren't as intelligent or aren't as valued and they don't see that, you know, there's the complexities of grammar and syntax. It's its own language separate of English. Melissa Malskoon is a third-generation deaf person. So, of course, I grew up uh, around sign language. and I worked Melissa is answering my questions in American Sign Language. So the person you're hearing here is Melissa's interpreter, Santana. I really am proud to be an ASL user. It's my culture. It's my identity. You know, I, I love the language. I love my community. Melissa is an artist, an activist, and an academic at Gallaudet University. And based on what she's seen of Coco... Coco didn't really know ASL. She wasn't a fluent signer. You know, it was a lot of gesture. The folks who worked with her on a daily basis had grown to understand the signs that she used. However, they wouldn't have been intelligible from the broader community. Melissa's grandmother and uncle actually worked with Coco as a baby, just briefly. They're both fluent signers, and over the years they saw that what Coco was being taught, for the most part wasn't American Sign Language. When Coco passed, there was, you know, a lot of information about her. You know, like she was in, in the news, so it just kind of led down to, to that topic of, you know, the, a gorilla who knew sign language, and she was a master of sign language, but it was really a misinterpretation of her ability and what she was actually doing. Which may be inadvertently reinforcing stereotypes about sign language. People say, okay, well, apes can sign. Oh, right. Well, I guess sign language um, is a diminutive of English. And so I think that in some ways that exacerbates the idea that sign language isn't necessarily um, a, a rigorous language. When I look back at the Coco and Nim studies through this lens, I also see this underlying assumption that ASL was somehow an easier or more rudimentary form of language. And so these scientists figured they could just learn it really fast and then teach it to apes. Which is not only kind of shitty, but also means that there will always be this what if. Like, what if the people who were most fluent in ASL, i.e. people in the deaf community, had actually been teaching Coco and Nim throughout their lives? And what if they had been an integral part of designing these studies? But regardless of sign exposure, Coco did her best, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, I want to be super clear. This is not a Coco bashing podcast. So (laughs) I appreciate you saying that. I think Coco really was doing her best. And today, scientists are trying to do better. I human, yes. After the break, I talk to some of them. Park outside, come. Yes. Park. 
Now, let's go. So remember those TikTok videos I mentioned at the start of this series? The ones where a dog presses a button and then we hear a recording of a human saying a word? Bunny dog. Mom is human. It turns out that this isn't just some TikTok thing. There's an actual study that's being conducted on these dogs, which was inspired by the TikTok videos. Thousands of dogs are enrolled in it. Some of them even have cameras in their homes right now, filming their every move. We have several cameras in the home of Bunny, so we have thousands of hours of Bunny. Hi, Bunny. Bunny is this famous TikTok dog. She's a black and white sheepadoodle, a sheepdog and a poodle, and she's very cute. Bunny has been using buttons to communicate with me since she was eight weeks old. Every time Bunny goes to the soundboard and pushes the button, okay. we have it on camera. <laughs> Love you too. Federico Rosano is a cognitive scientist at UC San Diego. He's leading the study that's trying to figure out what's going on with these dogs. I am not on TikTok. I'm not on Instagram. Like, none of the, our data comes from those clips. He did initially get interested when a colleague sent him links to the TikTok videos, but... We are not basing our claims on that five clips that you have seen. We're basing it on a thousand or several thousands of hours that we have recorded, we have analyzed, we have right. labeled. And for the dogs that have cameras in their homes, the question is sort of simple. When these dogs push a bunch of buttons that correspond to different words... Does it make sense? Meaning... Are these dogs communicating things that make sense in context, or... Or is the case that just like a broken clock is, shows the right time twice a day? And so, watching these videos, on a very surface level, it's a bit like watching an updated version of the Coco and Nim experiments. Because it's an animal that appears to be using a human language. Except it's on TikTok and not reading Rainbow. So I asked Federico about that. So Federico, is this dog button study, is it a language study? That's a very good question. Um, in many ways, it's not. It's a cognitive study. It's a study to assess the cognitive abilities of these animals, what they can learn, to what degree they can communicate with humans, uh, whether they can learn symbols, how many of them can they learn, what factors affect their learning, and whether they could combine them in ways that are flexible, creative, meaningful. If they do, then it would have implication for uh, language evolution or linguistic abilities and, and sort of what is special about human language. So this is an animal cognition study that, depending on the results, could have implications for how we think about language. But that's not the goal. The goal is to understand a little bit more about how the mind of a dog works. And the need to even explain that this is not a language study, that's a direct result of the bomb Herb Terrace dropped more than 40 years ago. Everywhere I looked, I saw that what I thought was spontaneous was prompted. The ape language studies of the 70s, to a certain extent, got scientists to re-examine their work. This it was a witch hunt. That's all I can, you know, that's what it was. It was. Remember Irene Pepperberg, who told us about the Clever Hans conference and who worked with Alex the parrot? 
after the conference, she started to think about her experiment differently. The first thing was, instead of calling my first paper Language-Like Behavior in a Gray Parrot, I changed the title before I submitted it to Functional Vocalizations of a Gray Parrot. Wow. And that was a strategic move on your part? Oh, yeah. You know, coming back from this, there was no way I was going to ever put a paper in that had language, you know, was in the title. How did that feel to you to have to do that? That was frustrating, but I realized that, in a sense, it was keeping me honest, in a scientific sense, okay? In that even calling it language-like, when, you know, we had basically he could identify a couple of objects, he could identify a couple of colors and a couple of shapes, you know? I mean, when a child does that, you know that the child will eventually develop full-blown language because... Unless there's some organic problem, the child does. But, you know, to argue that the animal would get there, we don't know. A lot more recent studies are going at this question from a different angle. Like, rather than trying to see if other animals can replicate the way we humans communicate, scientists are looking at the way animals communicate with each other and how different species experience the world on their own terms. Like, if we could talk to non-human animals using a language that we all know how to use, would we even be able to truly understand each other? Like, if you could interview a lion in its own language, you wouldn't understand what it was saying. Robert Sapolsky, the primatologist who briefly worked with Nim when he was in college... If you really could interview a chimp about how it feels about other chimps, you wouldn't understand what they were talking about because their perspectives, their values, where they're coming from. Could we even wrap our heads around other animals' ways of thinking and being? According to Robert, probably not. There's organisms out there that like sing to each other electrically. Like what we presuppose a provinciality of our sensory systems and our cognitive capacities that make us completely unable to be privy to what's going on in the heads of some other animal out there. Forget cultural relativism, um, species relativism. I think you're exactly right. I think we probably wouldn't understand a single word of it, right? And yeah. that's, that's worth pointing out. Dogs can continuously smell, right? Even when they're, they're, they're putting out breath, they can all, they're still smelling. Yes. That's wild. Yeah. So if I were to talk to my dog, what she tells me about, about how she perceives the world, I, I wouldn't even be able to connect to that. Dogs have a thousandfold more genes for olfactory receptors than we do. Like, what the hell is that world all about? It's... It's fantastic. We haven't a clue. And so this question I've been mulling over since the start of my reporting on this series, can we talk to animals? At this point, it all seems a little reductive, no? Because... When we focus on how much other animals are like us, 
we close ourselves off to so many other ways of being. And then we miss out on so much. A Show About Animals is a production of Vice News. It's hosted and reported by me, Ariel Zumros. Our producers are Julia Nutter and Pete Lang Stanton. Our production assistant is Lely Resvani. Sound design and original score by Pran Bandy, with additional support from Steve Bone. Annie Aviles is our executive editor. Kate Osborne is our executive producer and the VP of Vice Audio. Our senior production manager is Janet Lee. Thanks to Stephanie Karaoke and everyone else at Vice Audio for their insight and support throughout the production process. Special thanks to Maximo Anderson for fact-checking, to Rose Eveleth for notes throughout the series, and also to Diana Reese, Eugene Linden, Catherine Hobader, Terence Deacon, Esteban Rivas, Mark Krauss, Susan Storm, Max Mouskoon, Amy Schachter, Ty Robb, Christopher Platt, Sung Pyo Hong, and Sonora Taylor. 